that was a really intense experience that like really showed me, okay, you think you want to do this high tech growth startup thing? Like this is, this is it. You're doing it. You're learning everything about it. Is this really what you want? And I kind of realized it's not. Jay Klaus is a writer, podcaster, and community builder. He hosts Creative Elements, a narrative interview podcast exploring how your favorite creators make a living with their art and creativity. He previously led the community experience team for Pat Flynn and Smart Passive Income, designing their paid membership community and cohort-based course programs. We are here on the Gravity Podcast with Jay Klaus. Jay, it is great to have you. I'm excited to get into this conversation with you. Yeah, great to be with you too, Brett. Really excited to take part in this, to hang out, catch up, chat, learn some things about you, share some stuff about me. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do all that. So um, let's start at the beginning. I want to know about kind of your earliest memories of childhood, your kind of family dynamics, anything that, you know, jumps out just about your parents and, and, you know, kind of how you were raised. I'm the youngest child. I have two older sisters. So grew up in a family of girls. Uh, My parents were both high school teachers. And so were their uh, their siblings for the most part. And a lot of my cousins were teachers. My oldest sister grew up to be a teacher. So very much in like the K through 12 academia, <laughs> if you will, mm-hmm. growing up. And I went to college knowing that I didn't want to do that, but I didn't know much outside of that. We grew up on a farm in mm-hmm. rural Ohio. And I had a pretty narrow worldview, to be honest. So I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of my adulthood has been actively trying to expand that. And that's been fun. What was that like kind of growing up in, as you describe it, you know, a narrow kind of view of the world? Like, tell me more about that. You know, what was it like? It was probably just like normal, like everybody else's. I mean, I didn't realize it was narrow at the time, right? Mm -hmm. I just thought that life was trying to be good at sports. That's what I really wanted to do growing Mm -hmm. up. I was really good at class and school. That came really easily. But I was not really good at sports easily. So I worked really hard at that and never really got to where I wanted to be. I thought everybody just went to college, got a degree, got a job with that degree, worked that job for 35 years, retired and collected a pension. Like I just thought that was what life was. And so my choice entering into college was, well, pick pick what you want to do for the next 35 years. And that was so hard for me to understand and be okay with. But I also just didn't have any models for the contrary. And if you think back to kind of childhood and you think back about some sparks, you know, aside from this kind of idea, which I do think depending on where you live and who your parents are and, and the environment that you're in, who you're surrounded by, it's not an uncommon, at least it wasn't maybe when I was growing up and it sounds like for you too, that it wasn't uncommon to think like you were thinking at that time. You know, no. that you would go to college, you would find a career, you would pick something, you would do it for a long period of time, and then you would retire. That was that was really the roadmap. But when you think back, were there in hindsight some sparks, some um, interest, anything that kind of you can say, you know, I was maybe always called there, but I just didn't know that was even an option. If anything, it would be writing. I remember as a kid, writing 
like literal books. Like I remember reading a lot of Goosebumps books as a kid, you know? And then there was uh, this other... Oh, there's this other series that I forget the name of. But I would just start writing books in the style of that series as a kid. Mm-hmm. And then when I went into high school, I loved AP, AP English. And I loved taking poems and breaking them down and saying like, here's what I think the, the writer is doing here. And in fact, I was so good at that part of writing and language that I got a scholarship for full tuition to Ohio State from their... I forget the name of the scholarship program, but it was all about writing. And so I got a scholarship on my writing ability. And I still like was not convinced that I wanted to write. <laughs> but even still to this day, I consider myself a writer first and foremost. But no, there wasn't really a whole lot that I can point back to other than I've always been an achievement-oriented person. And in class, that was easy because to outperform my classmates, I just had to apply myself a little bit because my brain was like there. That was way different when I went to Ohio State because now I'm competing with 50,000 people that are all a 29 or higher ACT. That's how they got in. And it was really hard to reckon with my identity as like the high academic achiever when I went into college at Ohio State because it was just a completely different talent pool. So achievement has looked different throughout my life, but there's always this feeling of if I want to you know, do something, I expect myself to be better than anybody else at it. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think, what was the pull to sports? You know, tell me, why did you, in, when you're excelling so much in, in the world of writing, you know, you're getting all kinds of validation. It's, you know, you're obviously, you know, it seems like somewhat effortless. And on the other hand, you've got this pull to sports, which is more challenging for you. What was it about that? If I'm honest, I think it's that I cared what people thought of me regular, like my classmates and also my dad. And that was what brought credibility. It wasn't mm-hmm. academics. It was being really good in the eighth grade musical. In fact, that was the opposite. That was like mm-hmm. <laughs> the anti-credibility. Mm-hmm. So I think I was chasing approval from my classmates and my dad. And that felt like the best path to do it. I enjoyed it. You know, part, My favorite part about uh, football, which was a sport I cared about the most, I loved going to the gym. I loved working out. I loved seeing those numbers get higher and higher. And that was like this easy dopamine hit of like, better, 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 better. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make you game ready necessarily. That doesn't make you play well in the moment. It's it's a different discipline and skill to be a great linebacker than it is to, you know, be able to squat 405 pounds. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's part of the reason why I was asking because, you know, I do think it's a pretty... Um, again, common experience for young men um, to feel some sort of societal, parental, peer pressure to do what, you know, kind of society has decided, uh, at least, you know, historically or, or, you know, when you and I were growing up, that um, that's what we were supposed to do. Sports. Yeah. It was really about sports. I mean, you had your outliers who really were just comfortable knowing who they were and what they did, you know, and they were creatives and artists and, and you know, in theater or, you know, writers, right? There were some outliers, but mostly like whether you were good at it or not, um, you were, as a boy, kind of 
um, steered in a direction. And yeah. in, in that direction, you'd get some validation and you'd get some comfort and, you know, you, you would try at least, <laughs> you know, it might not actually be there, but that was the, the aim. Um, you yeah. want to belong, you want to fit in, you want to even have some level of status within the tribe, you know, and when you're growing up in a small town, there aren't a lot of established, you know, quote unquote communities to participate in. It becomes mm-hmm. kind of just one big community. And so to fit in, to you know, be cool to have some sort of status within that community. You have to play by that community's rules, and that community had a very clear set of rules. And uh, sports were, you know, what brought you credibility there. What was it fun for you, though? I mean, was there part of it that oh, yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, so yeah. it's not all bad. I mean, there is the aspect of it that's like, well, and you know, no, yeah. yeah, it wasn't like it was. It wasn't like I was begrudgingly saying, well. I have to do this because this is what people want from me. It was like, right. well, when I do this and I do it well, I get a good feeling and I feel yeah. accepted. And so like I was just constantly chasing that. And it was pushing me towards one part of my personality, but not really cultivating the more creative and you know thoughtful parts of my personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and just to kind of stick with this thread, just because I'm curious, it feels kind of alive for me in the moment, maybe just because I got done working out just a little bit ago and, you know, have that feeling of, you know, feeling good when it's over, right? You know, and, and, and seeing kind of the way that the physical activity actually for me is very good for my uh, emotional state um, on a number of levels. You know, there's all the kind of energetic release and then there's the just feeling good about yourself, feeling healthy, you know, for me, it's like, there's some of it that's fun. Um, like when I play tennis or sometimes when I'm running, um, or taking a walk, you know, that can be pleasurable. Um, but, um, sometimes it's a grind and it's not until you're done that you feel good, but you still feel good. So I'm just kind of curious, like the accepting piece, right? Cause that's a different thing when you're, doing something to be accepted. And when you are, it makes you feel good, right? Well, then that, that could kind of get into a, 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 a bad pattern. If you're always needing to feel accepted and do things to be accepted, and that's the only way to feel good, um, and, you know, versus the, you know, the physical benefits, release, the joy, the fun, the freedom, you know, how much of that was kind of starting to show up for you? Or how do you look at that now in your life? Some of that was there for sure. I mean, I don't think we realize when we're kids just how resilient our bodies are and how good we have it. <laughs> you know, so sure. now in my 30s, it's like, well, I've got to work out or I am running out of time actively. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, right. I feel that now for sure. And I've decoupled, you know, the, the idea of working out and exercising from the activity of acceptance, which was sports. Those things played together really well when I was a kid. But now working out is more of a self-care routine and mm-hmm. uh, a meditative routine, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, as kids, mm-hmm. you're going to school all day, five days a week. So like mm-hmm. you, you're pretty much waking thought is, am I enjoying my reality of the environment I'm in and the people that I'm around? And those people have their own set of rules and you just, you just want to enjoy that more. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I believe that humans move towards pleasure away from pain. So we're living mm-hmm. around people all day. How can I make this more pleasurable? Well, it'd be pleasurable if I was accepted by the tribe, if I was friends with the cool kids, if I got to go to these events with these people. I'm going to try to do that. You know, it's mm-hmm. painful when they 
pick on me or when they don't invite me to things. So that's a tough environment that we just put all kids in all the time mm-hmm. right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Talk to me. You go to college. You start to kind of you know lean into the writing. It sounds like you're getting this sense of like shit. You know, everybody's here. Everybody here is smart. Um, you know what happens then? Well, I went into Ohio State undecided because I thought it's a big university. Anything that I figure out that I want to do, I can do it there. But I don't know what that is yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I got placed into an honors dorm, and. Mm-hmm two of the people who shared a common wall with me at their dorm was next door, they had started businesses in high school. Hmm. And they were the only people on the floor that cared about weekends to the degree, to the degree that I did. It would be hmm. like, I remember actually my freshman year, Ohio State was still on quarters. I had a quarter when my weekend started on a Wednesday night. I had no classes Thursday or Friday. It was absurd. But I'm a freshman in an honors dorm. So no hmm. one else had that type of lifestyle. But these two guys, they were very down for me to come hang out and just, you know, talk about whatever. Mm-hmm. And I learned that entrepreneurship was a thing. They introduced me to the entrepreneurship club at Ohio State University. And that began to expand my worldview because it just blew my mind that there were people my age who were making products. At the time, it was like apps on the app store a lot. And they were selling mm-hmm. it for like $2 a piece, but they're making good money. And I was like, I didn't know that was possible. Like, Mm. who gave you permission (laughs) to do this Mm -hmm. thing? And around that time was like early Y Combinator. Startups are really sexy. So my whole world then became, okay, entrepreneurship exists, but I completely conflate that with high-tech growth startups. That's going to be my life now. And that's what Mm. I focused on for like four years, trying to get into that space. And most of my adult life afterwards has been expanding the scope of what entrepreneurship is also. Mm -hmm. Just because that is, you know, high-tech growth startups is just one small slice of the pie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me, you know, what was it about this kind of, you know, the intrigue, the curiosity, the um, spark, I don't know, the energy that you you were um, seeing in these other guys that had you realize, you know, that, this was something you were interested in, you know. I mean, you're in an honors dorm. Um, you're not. You don't come in as a as an entrepreneur. You don't come in as a business student, finance, right? Like, but there's something there. Um, you know, what was it? In retrospect, I think what it was is there had been this latent interest in making things and like taking ideas and making them real. That's probably the purest form of it. I didn't articulate that until recently, probably this kind of through line. But mm-hmm. it was awesome. And I've also, I've always had this kind of distaste for hierarchy. And a lot of it is like invisible hierarchy that exists around us. It, it became pretty obvious to me. I remember there was a speaker we had come talk to our club, the Entrepreneurship Club, the Business Builders Club at Ohio State. And he brought up the idea. He said, you know, when you start your own business and you can put founder in your email signature, people will open your emails that otherwise wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And that spoke to me. That was like a shortcut. I thought, oh, I want to be able to talk to people regardless of you know whatever my employment status is. I like the idea that I could communicate and be uh, somewhat of a peer to anybody by virtue of taking this risk and going out on my own and building my own thing. 
And that's like a that's that's a true phenomenon. I've seen that over and, and over and over again. When you mm. when you place yourself at the top of this invisible perception-based hierarchy as a one of one, the the founder of this thing, more people will give you the time of day and talk to you and mm-hmm. and and, mm-hmm. and uh, give you opportunities. And once I got a taste for that, it became really hard to go back because mm-hmm. it's really obvious when you go in the opposite direction that this hierarchy is meaningless. And mm-hmm. that why would you give me less of a chance because of a choice I've made in the employment side of my life? So it's been it's been really hard to go back in that way. Yeah, yeah. I I um, often um, will say and and have experienced, and you know, I know others that have had the same experience will say that you know when they make that leap, that entrepreneurial leap, they take the jump. Um, and they realize it's for them, they become unemployable, you know, mm-hmm. at that point. And it is, it's funny, you know, um, we're, we're a little bit apart in age. And so, you know, you're in college while apps are becoming a thing. Um, and, um, you know, now looking at kind of Web3 world, you know, what you experienced was a, was a taste uh, really of what's now becoming, I think, and will over the next, you know, decade become. A, a massive shift that you know what you just said um, it becomes the norm where you don't need to build a resume, um, work your way up a corporate ladder, have all the credentials that you know creators um, you know you can be valued for an idea, for uh, yeah. effort, for you know any number of of you know artistic you know ability, anything that you are good at, passionate about, you know, you can now, we know you can sit in your basement and, you know, record videos on your phone and, and, and that can be your, your life, you yeah. know, yeah. um, it's, it's a whole new, um, you know, shift in, in that approach to how you work, um, totally. which, you know, personally, I think is amazing. Totally. Totally. And it's not yeah. for everybody. I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday. We're very similar in the, in the fact that, you know, we built this life for ourselves now where, we have ultimate choice, really. We can do whatever we want with our time. And it becomes kind of existential then. And we have this pressure of like, well, I want my business to be successful and bring me joy also and you know, bring in good money. We put so much pressure on the business to check all the boxes for our life, including fulfillment and enjoyment. Um, and it, it's hard to put all that expectations on any one thing. It'd be the same if you try to put all that on a partner, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we do live in a time when it is possible to thread that needle and build a lifestyle around your creative energy, your creative work that fulfills you, sustains mm-hmm. you, uh, and gives you like ultimate optionality. Yeah. And I think there's this, you know, thing that sounds like it's true for you where like you you actually get to taste that. You know, there's this like aha where you're like, oh, you know, that's what it is. Um, I don't want to go back to that other thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going back. And it is very much, you know, I think an existential thing, you know, maybe, maybe um, more so, you know, for me or for people as they get older or depending on your background, um, where you're from, you know, that's why I'm kind of always curious to start, you know, at the beginning, you know, to see how those things may have impacted your path. Um, you know, but today I do think there is this dialogue that's starting to occur where the norms, you know, are 
are changing and there's freedom to explore something that does feel more alive for for the individual. Uh, tell me a little bit about kind of, you know, then what? You have this taste. You 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 get to see that this is who you are and what you want to do and in some form or fashion. You don't know maybe exactly, but you're getting this this juice of of being founder. You know, you're tasting that. What happens? Yeah, the college was then kind of a blur. Like I started running that entrepreneurship club, started organizing startup weekend events in town. This was just doing incredible things for my network, which I didn't realize at the time. And it wasn't why I was doing it, but that was what was happening. And I started a uh, stupid college startup, as most college kids do, that was like a Craigslist specifically for Ohio State students. You had to have an Ohio State email address to log in, and then you could buy and sell things. And that was cool. Mm-hmm. Out of college, I helped co found a ticketing company, a digital ticketing startup with a guy in Cincinnati. We did the uh, accelerator route. We raised some money. We sold that in 2015. That was a really intense experience that like really showed me, okay, you think you want to do this high-tech growth startup thing? Like this is, this is it. You're doing it. You're learning everything about it. Is this really what you want? And I kind of realized it's not. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and so it broke my lens a little bit and I had to think, okay, well, what parts of this experience did I like? What parts did I not like? And that began like this now endless iteration of how I spend my time professionally of, mm-hmm. okay, what do I like? Let's try to do more of that. What do I not like? How do I figure out how to do less of that? And continue mm-hmm. to get closer and closer to spending all my time on the aspects of entrepreneurship that I like. Yeah. So let, let me back up a little bit because I, I find this to be fascinating and I'm very much kind of on the same journey of, you know, removing things you don't like and going towards things you do and seeing, you know, to what extent you can do that forever, (laughs) you know, and there's a lot there. Um, You know, Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach, who I reference a lot, he talks about, you know, retirement being the Grim Reaper. And I've always kind of struggled with that a little bit until I think recently where I realized like, oh, wait, if you can um, find the things that you absolutely love doing, then they don't feel like work. And if you only do that, you can do that for the rest of your life, which is, you know, um, you know, incredible. Uh, you know, and and really, you know, it is maybe, you know, <laughs> what we, we should all be doing. But backing up, so tell me a little bit about um, you know, this first startup. I'm I'm always fascinated by this, and and I'm you know thinking about my own kids, and and I think there's a lot to be learned, not just in kind of the early days of your entrepreneurial career, but in general. I'm still learning this. There's a lot to be said for like doing something, even if it's shit, (laughs) you know, even if it's never going anywhere, um, but like just getting into it. Um, and and I don't know. That's what kind of came yeah. up for me when I heard you say, you know, your stupid startup. But you know, tell me about like your experience really with that first go around and how that did impact you. Yeah, it was hugely impactful. So it came on the back of me not getting a second interview with a couple of management consulting firms because I thought that might be the path I go. Because out of business school, if you get a job in management consulting, like you've won. And I still had that achievement oriented part of me. Um, but I was bad at math, and so I was bad at case interviews. Everyone was saying all along, though, aren't you the startup guy? Shouldn't you just be going and joining a startup? 
And so I did. There was a guy in Cincinnati named Alex, Alex Burkhart. He had a background in loyalty programs at Macy's and he was a huge sports fan. And his idea was to take ticketing. You know, StubHub is a secondary ticket marketplace. What we built, Tixers was also a secondary ticket marketplace. His idea was though, instead of uploading your ticket and waiting for a third-party buyer to come and buy it, and you're watching the market, you're setting the price, yada, yada. You just go to Tixers. You say, here's my ticket. Tixers immediately says, here's what we will pay you for that ticket in terms of site credit. And you can use that towards any other future event ticket. And you can liquidate your, your asset, your inventory immediately. And that was a pretty cool idea, I thought. So we did that. Meanwhile, we're literally competing with like StubHub and SeatGeek and these huge monster secondary platforms. Also, a ton of just ticket brokers. And secondary sales for tickets, that was illegal not that long ago. It was scalping. So a lot of the big players that have been been around for a long time, they're borderline criminal. It was a weird, tough industry. And learning the ins and outs of like how the ticketing market works uh, mm-hmm. you know, everyone talks about Ticketmaster and how much they hate their fees and things. It's so much worse than you even realize. But anyway, we were a small team. What I really took away right off the bat was the first exercise we did was we each did a budget. And we said, what is the least we can pay ourselves so that we can pay our bills? And I learned to live on like $24,000 a year. Uh, that's an incredible skill if you want to be entrepreneurial. And we hired outsourced engineers. We built this platform. We built the minimum viable thing that seemed like magic, but really what it was me, what it was, was me being constantly on my phone or computer doing manual actions that looked automatic to the user. Mm. And it was exhausting because Mm -hmm. events are nights and weekends. So I was building the business during the day. Then I was like in the business nights and weekends. It was exhausting. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you something. So, you 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 conclude that then that experience isn't for you, right? I mean, you, you decide you don't want to do that again. I, I think, right? More or less, it was kind of like it was half of that decision. Th- that decision was made even more when after the company sold, I started working at a venture backed company here in town, mm-hmm. and I saw what you know. A startup at scale looked like also, and what the mm-hmm. CEO's life looked like running that startup. And I just thought, I don't want that life. But, you know, the idea, like what I learned in both of those things was I still love to make things because I was essentially a product manager in both those scenarios. Like I was co founder, but I was building the product. Then I was leading product at this other startup. And the reason I gravitated towards product management was because I could go from idea to reality in the product. But in a startup world, I have to push those ideas through an engineering team, a design team. There are all kinds of compromises that happen along the way that are not my vision. And I'm left at the end with like a Frankenstein version of what I actually wanted. And I've found there are other ways as a creative person, as a creator, to take my ideas and make them real without them having to be put in the form of software. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was kind of curious and, and you know, just... Um... You know, another reason why I love doing this podcast is because I learn a lot for myself. You know, selfishly, I, I, you know, I'm always learning from other people. It's it's actually why I I started the podcast was I was just you know having conversations with people that I 
was getting a lot out of and thought, oh, well, maybe we'll share it. Um, but uh, so, I, so I'm kind of, you know, asking this selfishly. Um, there's uh, some curiosity on my part about how, whether it was software, software or another, you know, kind of business-based tech, maybe even any kind of startup, why didn't you apply kind of your current thinking, which is let's try to, um, you know, kind of improve it constantly, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Like wh- why was it that you felt like there was a, a need to kind of make a bigger shift into different work as opposed to continuing to refine the experience? You know, like for example, you didn't have to be at a certain point, the guy that was doing all the nights and weekends, right? Sure. There, you could outsource yeah. that. You could hire for it, right? There's, I mean, now not always when, you, when you're in a startup, you might not have the funds for that, but you can raise capital if you have a good idea I and mean, you have a track record. There's ways to constantly improve in totally. that lane. You totally. chose to go a different lane. So tell me you know, a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think it comes down to when you're building a business, you have to be kind of obsessed with it, probably to an unhealthy degree, if you want it to be successful, in my opinion. A lot of people won't tell you that straight up, but it's my opinion, maybe I'm doing it wrong, that you kind of have to be unhealthily obsessed with the thing for it to reach its potential. And I didn't have that level of obsession with the ticketing industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just mm-hmm. hard for me to live there. And then mm-hmm. when I went to a startup, that was in the healthcare industry. And that was so mm-hmm. frustrating. So it was hard for me to live there. And mm-hmm. I think it was more a... a um, you know, the outcome was I left that company also. And I started doing freelance work, essentially. And I discovered content creation. And that, was, that just fit like a glove. And I loved it. And it became more of like, ah, I love 80% of this life now. So I'm going to iterate mm-hmm. on this instead. Got it. Okay, so let me ask you this. When you get into the content creation world... Um, and part of this is just, you know, again, my own intrigue with, with um, you know, having done this as well, um, to some degree, um, I still kind of live in both worlds. But you know, in the, in the startup world, ticketing or otherwise, um, healthcare even, right? Like you, you know, in that world, there is a path towards a financial outcome that has you stable or possibly way better, right? Um, Did you have a sense as to how that was going to be true in the content world? Um, Or were you, you know, how scary of a leap was that from like, you know, the path of what appears to be some financial freedom and success to um, something that feels like it fits, you know, that you're really excited about that feels like it's you and right, but maybe isn't as clear on how the financial, what the financial path is. Yeah, I think the pain of being accountable to a boss and to customers using software, like that turned mm-hmm. me off so much that I just enjoyed the optionality of being mm-hmm. a content creator so much that the compromise I was willing to make was near-term creature comforts that I could afford. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, when I joined Tixers, I learned how to live incredibly cheaply. Mm-hmm. And that is so valuable <laughs> if you're starting mm-hmm. as a content creator because it's such a tough game. But mm-hmm. I, did, I did figure out very early on that the fastest way I could make revenue as an entrepreneur was just to sell my time. Mm-hmm. Like 
we think of employment, full-time employment and part-time employment as these, or full-time employment or self-employment as these two very different things. But really, it's just like, how much of your time are you willing to sell and for how much? Mm-hmm. And you know that may be full-time employment, maybe part-time employment, maybe self-employment with clients. And I figured out pretty quickly that I could you know, make a good living by just selling a fraction of my time. And then I could create content. And over time, additional products and affiliate revenue, that would start to earn me enough revenue that I could stop doing client work. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I didn't think I was going to strike it rich off the bat, mm-hmm. no. Um, mm-hmm. And I constantly mm-hmm. question like, where's the big money come from? Because I've always mm-hmm. just had an assumption that the big money will come. Someday, mm-hmm. like, money's not going to be an issue for me. But it was hard for me to see the end of the rainbow in this mm-hmm. world. But once you start selling digital products, the math becomes like pretty compelling and pretty simple pretty quick. Like, mm-hmm. right now, the business is doing better than it's ever done. And I still feel like I am not even close to entering the market to the degree that I <laughs> could. You know, yeah. like, it's crazy. Tell me, tell me about the business. Let's talk about the business. Explain to the audience your business. So it's called Creative Companion. It's a media business. I have an email newsletter. I have digital courses. I have digital workshops, which are like digital courses, but they're just hour-long videos into a specific subject. Um, I create a lot of content, written content that can be monetized with uh, affiliate links and relationships, uh, podcast content, which can be monetized with sponsorship. Um, royalties are in the mix because I made some courses with a partner. So I have close to 30 income streams at this point uh, across various sources and partners and things. And none of those income streams are super significant. Some are more significant than others, but they add up to be pretty compelling. You know, I heard somebody refer to it as uh, a revenue ocean because you have so many streams coming together that it's like, this is really resilient. And any one of these starts to tick up and it impacts the entire ecosystem and things get better and better. That was a hard reality to visualize in the beginning when I'm writing an email to 100 people, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But things compound. Compounding yeah. is magical. Oh, it is. And it's, it's patience and trust and, you know, um, some grit and a whole bunch of things because you got to really get through that, you know, hard part. Um, much like, you know, <laughs> the physical side of things too, right? You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, growth there that's required. Uh, Tell me about how you did that. How did you, you know, what, what I'm uh, assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming this was new to you. Like all oh, of yeah. it, everything you just said, totally. all of those 30 products, like, and, and did you teach yourself? Um, you know, how did you become um, somebody who has 30 different incomes, you know, lines of revenue, um, you know, that's all self-created? You know, yeah. that's and, and a thing that you had no experience in doing. It's not like you were a communications major. It's not, you know, totally. talk about how you did that. Yeah. I mean, one step at a time, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you, I, I was, I was writing the email and it started actually with a coach that I had in January of 2017. I was working at the healthcare startup and I was in a funk. I did not like it. And mm-hmm. he helped me realize that I had this tape playing in my mind where I thought that. I couldn't go back out on my own because I was not a creative person. I was an operator. I was an executor. Someone else, plug in your vision and I will make it real. And I had to prove to myself that I was actually a creative person. So I started writing. I started writing every day. And that was my covenant to myself and to a public list of people who subscribed. And that just 
switch the flip, that flip the switch. That gave me the confidence to know that I can hit deadlines. There was a year in college where I actually studied journalism and learned a ton. Like I covered the mm-hmm. football team and it just gave me this immense respect for deadlines. So when mm-hmm. I say that I'm going to ship an email every Sunday, I'm going to ship an email every Sunday. It might not be good, but it's going to go out. Mm-hmm. Um, and having that mindset and just knowing I'm going to do it and do it and do it, that helped. I have a ton of mentors, most of which I've never met. Because you can just listen to podcasts. You can read books. You can listen to audiobooks. You can learn so much from the people that you want to emulate without having a direct conversation with them these days. We live in a magical mm-hmm. time for that. Mm-hmm. So I would take steps in one direction and I'd realize, okay, this is another direction I want to step in. Who can I learn about this from? And whether I actually have a conversation or whether I listen to them do five podcast interviews, you start to pick it up and you dabble and you learn. And you know, one step at a time, you keep shipping, mm-hmm. keep meeting new people. People are everything in this journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And so how many years has it been since you, you made that transition? About five in total. I left, I left my last job in April of 2017. Uh, to start freelancing and creating content. Uh, but really, the business on the content side, on the leveraged income side, where it's not me providing services, that really took off from mid-2020 to today. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so let me ask you. Yeah. So, so mid-2020, is that what you said? Yeah. The, today? The, yeah. the podcast launched March 2020. I started mm-hmm. caring about SEO in March 2020. And everything has been you know, a growth curve since. Yeah, it's fascinating, and maybe um, off the recording, I'll I'll pick your brain a little bit more because you know I have been now in I guess this is my third year of the podcast, and um, it's really very uh, unknown to me. I'm not really in it to um, grow an audience. Um, I mean, I'm not. Uh, that is something I would like, um, but it's about you know having people hear it more. Um, you know, it's not, it's, it's about making more impact. It's not about like the numbers or, or money even. Um, but I, I, I desire for whatever I do to be massively impactful. That's just my desire in life and and goal with what I spend my time on. Um, but I have no idea how to do that actually, you know, (laughs) and, um, from what I've learned and, and I think, you know, it's been hard for me to accept this, so I, and I and I haven't actually. But it does seem like there's a common mantra that, to some extent, it just takes time, yeah. and that you have to kind of do it consistently. And um, the other piece, which I which I don't love, is um, just more content, more content, more content. Um, you know, I've personally not been willing to do that, but. Um, Talk to me. Tell me, like, you know, what what is it? Is that true? There's some truth in all of that. I think I am making a bet that having an audience is one of the most valuable assets you can create. Um, Mm. The margins in this type of business are incredible, you know? So, like, you can live cheaply and then you can also just generate a lot of wealth when you start to get to the other end of that growth curve. But, like, from from an audience building standpoint, just think of it this way. Let's assume that 1% of the people who actually tune in and consume your content are big fans and even advocates to the point where they'll tell other people. When you have 100 people who are actually reading your email, that's not a very compelling number. You have one person who's spreading word of mouth to other people. Ugh, that's a slow growth trajectory. So you got to be hustling. You got to be hustling to personally invite other people to subscribe to that, pushing it hard so that when you get to 1,000 people, now you have 10 advocates. That's a little better. 
you know, and those numbers really start to compound. You see that because advocates and people sharing it is what really brings in the growth. So it's, it's exponential. It's compounding. The more people that you have sharing it, the more people you have subscribing, the more people you have sharing it. It's really hard in the beginning. But, you know, you start to reach the other end of the spectrum and there's basically escape velocity where no matter what you do, you have enough people that are reading it, that enough people are advocates of it, that it's going to keep growing unless you get canceled, you know, mm-hmm. and do something really bad. Do you think it's, do you think it's um, become too crowded already? I mean, is, is it, um, you know, kind of already like, uh, you know, you see, like, if you look at the bestseller list, um, nonfiction bestseller list, half of that is made up of people with massive followings, mm-hmm. um, right? So, you know, like uh, Brene Brown um, does the big TED talk, um, you know, goes viral, uh, then writes a book. And I don't know if I have that in the right order, but, you know, becomes sure. um, a, you know, very famous author after the TED talk then does the podcast, right? Um, and the podcast is an immediate you know, hit, right? I don't know. If you look at you know, who's at the top of the list, you have our Joe Rogan, who also had some exposure, you know, a celebrity, um, but you know, maybe you know, a Tim Ferriss maybe is a better example who really, right? But um, a lot of the main big uh, influencers you know, in the podcast space or in the book space, or maybe even in the, um, you know, class workshop space are kind of, you know, already have massive followings. Is it, can, can a unknown, can a, a little guy, um, you know, make it in this world, you know, um, without having done something else or starting with a big following? For sure. Uh, still very possible. It's, Harder than it was yesterday, but it's easier than it's going to be tomorrow. So, you know, if you want to do it, now's a good time to start because there are more models of success than ever before. The means of creation are better and cheaper than ever before. So there is more competition. Uh, it's just like any business. You're going to have to be pretty obsessed with it. You're going to have to enjoy the actual journey, the process, the path of it. But it's 100% possible. And if growth quickly is what you're trying to do, the more... Sp- super specific you can be, especially if you have credibility with a history of being good at that thing, you know, that can be helpful. I struggle with this all the time because I try to stay fairly broad because that's my interest base. Like mm-hmm. I love working with and writing to all types of creators. I don't care the medium you create in. I don't care the platform you create on. I want to create content for you. I would grow a lot faster if I said, I create content for YouTubers. Mm-hmm. That would be much more clear to who this is for and who it's not for. And mm-hmm. every piece of content that I create would be for that person. So I'm fighting uphill against myself more than I could than I should. And mm-hmm. if you're starting today, be really specific, be really consistent. And it's 100% possible. Uh, I just interviewed somebody on my podcast, Creative Elements. Her name is Cody Sanchez. She's grown her audience to over a million people in just over two years. Um, That's now incredible. The story, it's incredible. It's insane. It's, it's mm-hmm. wild. The story that's not told there or not captured in that is that she had 15 years of like Wall Street investing experience and then investing in small, boring, quote unquote, startups. And so the content that she creates is around that. She has a ton of credibility and a ton of experience yeah. to draw on. A lot of people get out of college and they say, I want to be a YouTuber. I want to be a content creator, but they have nothing to create content about. Uh, yeah. So it's a slow build because why would I pay attention? 
Sure. Got it. Right. Okay. A couple of things you've said that I, I want to just um, circle back around on. You, you've talked about this kind of obsession that you know um, was necessary in the startup world. Um, and then also, you know, this idea of being very specific about what it is is that is your thing. Um, again, both of those I think might be true. Um, both of them somewhat uh, bother me a bit. Sure, <laughs> I have been trying to reverse engineer my way out of the obsession piece, and I um, am, and, and I and I believe it's possible. I believe it's possible to not be. Um, fully obsessed with the business to the point that it's all consuming. You you might be obsessed about like the idea, the why behind it, um, but I'm not sure if you have to give a hundred percent of yourself to something all the time in an obsessive way for it to work. But I'm also not convinced that you don't. Um, yeah, I right. Mean, everything's trade offs. You know, I'm trying yeah. to. I'm kind of speaking to a. A best fit path here. You know, there, there are dots all over this line graph. And I'm saying, if I just look at the best fit, I think this is what is the most true. There are examples of the contrary for sure. And there are trade-offs that can be made to fight against any one of these things. But a lot of people's expectations of growth and timelines, what they want, I think you have to start obsessed. Um, and I think a lot of the examples of people saying to the contrary that you don't have to do this are doing that with the benefit of, well, I've reached this point. Yeah. And I got to this point because I actually was the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I actually think that's right. Um, I think that there comes a time where you can shift your um, balance. You can shift your priorities. But I think at the start, it's going to require a lot of work, you know, and you're going to need to be fairly obsessed to get something off the ground. Well, and the other example I give, it's just, it's just math. You know, if you are putting in 30 hours a week and someone else is willing to put 40 and they're doing the same thing, they're going to have a lot more time they put into it after one year and then after two years and after mm -hmm. three years. I just watched this two hour interview with Mr. Beast, who's mm -hmm. the biggest YouTuber on the planet, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. And he was explaining this. He was like, he was talking about how obsessed he is. He's like, I eat, sleep, and breathe this. I have a small group of other really high performing YouTubers. Every video I ship, they send me notes on it. Think about how much better I'm getting at YouTube every day because that's my practice. I'm shipping these incredibly high quality videos. I have the best people in the industry giving me feedback on it immediately. I'm taking action on that insight immediately. How much faster am I iterating and getting better? And I'm putting more time into it than anyone else. Mm -hmm. It's just like, yeah. you can't, you can't out-compete that. Yeah, no, no, that's right. Okay, so um, talk a little bit about, I know you have taken the path of going a little bit broader in your scope of content, but but what what's the why for you and, and kind of tell me a little bit more or the audience a little bit more about the content that you are creating, who it's aimed at, what your um, kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, mission is. Your end game, your your why. It's a lot of what we've talked about in this conversation. Honestly, I want to help other people build a creative platform that sustains mm -hmm. them and gives them optionality. That's what I want to do because I've seen that impact people in such positive ways, and those are the people that I enjoy interacting with the most <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because they are just so aligned. They know, you know, th there's there are a lot of people who want financial independence because they actually want the thing after financial independence, which is 
optionality and freedom to spend their time how they want with the people that they want. My argument is you can actually have that today if you're willing to make some trade-offs in your lifestyle and go in this direction of building a creative platform that supports you. And then ironically, if you do that long enough and create really great work, you're probably going to generate financial freedom for yourself too. uh, Mm -hmm. And maybe faster. So that's the the path that I'm trying to illuminate for more people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, with the big disclaimer that it's hard work. Yeah, it it's is. it's thankless work for a long time. Yeah. Yep. Got it. But, you know, there is that piece that has, you know, you not caring um, or not wanting to do anything else because <laughs> you love it. And, you know, that's clear about you. Um, Jay, tell me what else, what else should we share with the audience as we start to wrap up here? Any kind of final thoughts or any projects you're excited about? Anything else you want to make sure that you uh, share with us today? Well, you're a podcast listener. You like podcasts. Check out Creative Elements. I talked to some of the biggest creators on the planet. Tim Urban, James Clear, Seth Godin, uh, Cody Sanchez, I was just speaking about, Tori Dunlap. People who have done this. Uh, These people do a lot of interviews. But they typically talk about their work. Like James goes on a podcast, he talks about habits. I talk to these creators about how they build a business around their art and creativity. And if that sounds like your jam, check it out. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. That's it. Awesome. Jay, thank you. I uh, definitely want to follow up with you and and get some help um, from you as I continue to create. Yeah, got it. And um, it's just uh, good to catch up with you and uh, see you doing so well. Thanks for yeah. taking the time to join me. Likewise, Brad. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 